basically just connected through ARC, Association of Related Churches, and he had some questions, and we started talking, and, and that led to a relationship, and um, basically, we've had a couple, of, we had a couple of connections outside of church, just kept talking, and just seeing where God, you know, had him on his journey, and just kind of playing a role, wasn't sure where that was going to go, and long story short, I'll let him fill in some of the blanks, but um, this, this person I'm introduced tonight has become a very good friend. Not only has he become a friend outside the ministry, but now he's part of our ministry. He's inside our ministry. He's, in, he's a part of, of Connect Community Church, and now this is his home church. And um, He's a pastor. Um, he has been a senior pastor of two different fellowships, and, um, but God has drawn him to connect, to be a part of our local fellowship. And uh, I've had the privilege of being able to get to know not only him, but his kids and his awesome wife. And uh, his wife, I think I can announce this, but his wife is coming on staff at MCA and for our Christian Academy. And so it's just cool to see how God is bringing and fusing uh, family to connect. And so it's a great honor. It's a great pleasure to introduce you my friend, one of our very own. Uh, new to connect in, in just recent months, but Pastor Mark McKethrin. Would you guys give it up for Pastor Mark as he comes up to speak to us? Amen. That's a nice intro. Thanks. I think I am. Am I on? All right, excellent. You know, when we were having that awesome time of prayer and worship, I thought, how on earth do you come up front and talk? After that, you know, because who are we in the face of God Almighty? And nonetheless, it's a task that I've been given tonight, and so I'm really excited to be here. My wife, Julie, and I so love this church. As PD said, we discovered Connect when we came to the ARC 2.0 here, which was, and we were so thrilled to discover Connect because, you know, in cold New England, there are not a lot of life-giving churches. There aren't a lot of churches that are welcoming people in and helping them to see how relevant the Bible is in their life today and helping them to feel like they're comfortable. People who have been so long away from a church, perhaps, that they can come in and not feel like an outsider, but feel like an insider right away, be greeted in the parking lot and on the way up here 10 times before you manage to set foot in the sanctuary. I'll tell you that is the greatest thing because people are so scared to come to a church for the first time. You know why the, the two things that people are most scared about when they come to church? They don't know where they're gonna park and where the bathrooms are. And those super practical things stand in the way of people going to a new church, which sounds so ridiculous, but it's the reality. It's what, it is what people face. And so this church is so awesome, as you know, about being friendly and, and all the message and just everything. I just, we just love this church because it's so great. As PD said, I pastored a church, a small country church in Vermont um, for four years, which was great, and I'll tell you. You think it's a cold spiritual field here. <laughs> you go up to north central Vermont and it's a completely different world up there. It's even worse. And then, and then the Lord brought us down and, we, and I pastored a church um, about an hour away from here for a couple of years. And, um, and then it just seemed like, it became clear that we were not quite the right fit because we wanted to reach the lost and there was a little bit of other stuff going on. And so we want to leave grace in a situation, but, the, but so my wife and I said, we, we're going to have to go somewhere else because we want to be, make sure that we're connected to a church that is so committed to reaching the lost more than anything else. And I love what PD said this morning because it's true. These statistics are true. Where is it in America that people are saved today. It's in church plants. 
I don't know why. I don't know why that's what God is doing, but that's what he's doing. So should we pay attention to that and say, okay, great, we're going to be as, we're going to make it as comfortable for people as we can as they're coming in the door. And um, so, so that's what we're doing. So let's pray and let's ask the Lord just to bless our time together. Continue to bless our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. What an awesome time of prayer and worship, Lord. You are so great and mighty and powerful. And who are we to stand before your presence? We're nobody except for the fact that you invite us into your presence. You desire us to be in your presence with you. Lord, we don't deserve it. But thank you so much that you love us so much that you just are continuing clawing us at us to bring us closer and closer and closer to you. Lord, help us to use our gifts well, Lord. Help us to please you with our lives because we do want to be serving you. We want to be following you as our Lord and Savior, Lord. Tonight, Lord, the words that I speak, Lord, I pray that they would be something that each person can benefit from here tonight, Lord. And if the words that I offer, Lord, are not the right words for them, Lord, simply have them hear different words from you so that everybody walks out from here uh, just uh, renewed and refreshed and challenged by your word in some way. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So a few years ago, here I was, I was pastoring this uh, small country church in Vermont. I had started and... and um, uh, one of the great things is, and you know, in cold northern New England, our brothers and sisters in Christ down south like to try to impact the north, don't they? And so there was this awesome church from the Charlotte area that brought up a crew of great volunteers to run Vacation Bible School at our church and a couple of other small churches sort of scattered through the rural hills of Vermont. And this thing had been going on for a few years when I got there in the first year, just boom, I, I, I showed up and they already had this stuff planned out. The next summer they didn't come. The third summer, they were coming back again. And I started getting nervous. Like, is anybody going to show up? We were advertising and we were trying to do, is my, my good? We were trying to do everything we could to make sure that we were doing our part, praying hard about kids coming in attendance. Um, but we didn't know. And it wasn't, uh, our goal was not to be bringing uh, the, the kids in our church to the Vacation Bible School, it was to bring other kids in the community and unchurched kids in the community into this. And we advertised, and we asked people to call up and make reservations. We didn't require it, but we, we were trying to get a sense of what was going on. And we were praying about it. I don't know if we were praying about it lightly or not, but we kept praying that the days are approaching more and more and more. And we had received zero phone calls. There was nobody that had called to inquire or told us they were coming. And I had this rising sense of panic bubbling up in me because these awesome people from Charlotte were taking a week plus out of their lives away from their jobs and their families and their homes and driving up to Vermont and doing these vacation Bible schools. And I didn't think there was anybody that was any kids that were going to show up at our church for this. I thought, what do we do? And I started, I had this rising sense of panic and I kept praying and kept praying and praying. I've been praying that we would have at least 30 kids there. May not sound big to you, but in a rural area, that's pretty good. And so, and this, and I was just praying more and more and more fervently because nobody was calling. And I so distinctly remember the very morning that it was supposed to start, I'm in the sanctuary of the church and I'm praying. And the phone rang. And I went over, I thought to myself, oh, do I go answer it or not? I go over and answer the phone. And it was a woman, I don't know who she was, calling up, simply inquiring about what time the service was. At what, what time Vacation Bible School was. She wasn't committing to having her kids come, told her, and I hung up the phone, and I didn't know how, but in my spirit, I knew that God had heard and was answering our prayer. 
And it was like this burden was off me. This pleading that I had done with God, he had heard and answered. And I didn't see what the answer really was yet, but I just knew that he was working in this situation. And, um, and these people were going to show up. And because I was so, so worried that I was going to be thoroughly embarrassed for myself and our church, and I was going to be disheartened for these great people that were ready to volunteer and do all these things. But I knew that God was working. I hadn't seen it yet, but I knew he was. And lo and behold, he did. There were over 40 kids there, and God worked in a great way, and it was so exciting to see that happen. Yeah. And so I knew that somehow the, the depth of this prayer that I was, this pleading that I was doing with God had somehow resonated with him in this magical way where the prayers of men and, and God's sovereignty intersect to bring about something great. And so that's what I want to talk a little bit about tonight. This issue of pleading or begging with God in prayer. And I want to leave you tonight with this one thought, and that is that we have permission to plead with God. We have permission to plead with God. But just to be clear, this is, I, this is not a message about prayer in general. It's about one specific aspect of something that we may not be inclined to regularly do on our own, a, a direction we may not necessarily head. Because what is pleading? If we look at the definition for pleading, pleading is to make an emotional appeal, or it's to beg to use arguments or persuasions to try to get somebody to do something or try to alter a situation in general. It's this down and dirty thing where what? We almost uh, give up all of our pride and humble ourselves and just, we are so desperate to see something come about that we don't care how we act or what we say because we are so desperate to see this happen. I have a dog that does that every morning when we're making toast or bagels or English muffins. And dogs, isn't it incredible the nose on a dog? You know, the toast or something comes out of the, out of the toaster oven and he comes in from the next room and he's like prancing around and pawing at you. He is determined that he's going to get some of this. And he is unabashed and he is unending with his begging for this stuff until somebody finally gives him something. He is so determined. Well, that's what the dog, in his dog sort of way, is begging with us. You know, my wife Julie and I, we have five kids. <laughs> and, you know, I still, I remember when we left, when we had our third kid, I knew that the tide had shifted. The one-to-one -one adult child ratio was gone. And it sort of didn't matter how many we had anymore. But, but so our oldest is 23 and our youngest is 13. And um, I think we've been great parents most of the time. And, but uh, one of our sons, Calvin, he's 21 years old now. We had this little texting conversation about it this week as I was working on this. And he said, I will, uh, uh, um, I will never admit that this actually happened. But the story is true. And I said, I'm going to share it in my sermon, Calvin, sorry. <laughs> he had his first real girlfriend. She was this delightful beautiful, super friendly girl named Molly. And he had, he had this date lined up with her. And she was great, and really super. And Calvin is a big-time procrastinator. And we had been very serious about, about the fact that he had to get some stuff done. And this had been multiple days out in advance. And the day for that date showed up, and it was not done. I said, Calvin, 
So this is why I say I'm not sure if I'm a good parent. I said, Calvin, his first date, did you do it? No, I said, you're not going on a date. And this strapping young 17-year-old started crying. He was so desperate to go on this date with Molly. He didn't go because we were going to, but he begged and pleaded because what? Because that's the sort of thing that tugs on a father's heart, right? And that's what he was going to do. We want to look at this issue of pleading before the Lord tonight. And as we start looking at it, I want to offer you maybe four observations to start with about pleading with God. It's interesting. Pleading with God is not taught to new believers, is it? You know, what are we, when somebody becomes a believer, we teach them all sorts of great things. We, we encourage them about praying and Bible reading and small groups and serving and, and stepping closer and, and, and being in community. But at no point in time do we come into them and say, you need to learn how to plead with God. I mean, it's just not on our register. It's, it's not, it sounds a little, it's like the basic handbook of Christian living, if there was such a thing. That doesn't sit in there. And for those of us who are more mature in our walk, we've been around for a long time, you know, it's not in that handbook either. In seminary, they, don't, they never come out and tell you, and by the way, you want to make sure that you make pleading with God a part of your Christian walk because it can make a profound difference for you. They never come out and tell you that either. And so, so even for mature, more mature believers, pleading is not taught to us or encouraged with us. I think part of the, one of the things that holds us back from pleading with God is that it doesn't seem very dignified, does it? We would like to feel like we maintain some level of, uh, uh, of maturity or character or personality, and, and, and stepping away from that doesn't quite fit, and starting to plead doesn't quite fit. Uh, I grew up in a, uh, um, what I would consider to be a cultural Christian home, my parents are not believers. They're very faithful church attenders, but they haven't gotten to the place where they uh, have committed their lives to Christ. And this church that I grew up in, so it's clearly a miracle of the Lord that I became a believer as a result, but this, this church I grew up in, I can distinctly remember showing up in the, the Sunday morning bulletin was a far cry different than what you get here on Sunday mornings for your, your worship guide. And written out in there, do you ever, any of you experience this in a, in, a, in, a, in a mainline New England Protestant church? There'd be this call to worship, this responsive thing, right? The speaker up front who may be the pastor, somebody else, says some, reads some lines, and then you read the next lines, the bold, not bold, bold, not bold. We'd go through this, and then there's this, I got some nodding going on, and then there's this pastoral prayer, which, which seems like these carefully selected words, and artfully crafted with no emotion in it at all. And you get done reading, you feel like, and I can remember as a kid, reading it's like, whoo, we're halfway through because it covered so much of the bulletin, right? It is the things that a kid does, right? And so, and so, and please, that seems so dignified and organized, doesn't it? Which is so separate from what pleading is before the Lord. Uh, the fourth observation I would make, just in general, is that I know how to plead. And you do too, on a secular level, right? We all know how to plead. We were all good with, it, good with it when we were kids. Please, please, can I go? Please, can I have another cookie? Please, please, please. We did that all the time, right? Pleading is not a foreign uh, concept to all of us, but it may well be foreign for us to be interjecting that into our Christian walk, right? 
And yet I feel like most of the big things that have happened spiritually in my life, honestly, that's when I was pleading with the Lord. It wasn't the little arrows here and there. It was the deep down ongoing pleading. And that's when I saw the Lord do great things. So we've got these observations about, uh, about pleading in general. And, and it can still make us feel like it's somehow wrong in the Christian life. But as we transition to the next piece here, I, I want you to understand not only is pleading not wrong, but pleading with God is super biblical. The, um, and I'm going to show you how the dream team of the Lord has expressed that for us in Scripture. But to make sure you understand a little bit more about the dream team, so I was, I was born in 65. And so in the early, I distinctly remember, in the right around, the, around 1990, 1991, there was this huge shift that took place with the Olympics and professional athletes participating. Do you remember this at all? You know, it used to be that what? We'd see the Soviets, and we knew they were all pros, right? And against all the U.S. amateurs and amateurs from all over the world, but from this closed country, we had no idea what they were doing, but we knew. The rumors were all clear that we knew the Soviets. They were all paid. They were all pros, this and that. And so the International Olympic Committee sort of shifted things, right? Now all of a sudden, we were going to have professional athletes participating. And when the United States assembled its first um, uh, um, men's basketball team to be participating in the Olympics in the early 90s, that's when the first dream team was created, right? It, that was it. It was this team. And so I got a list of these. You, if you're a basketball fan, you'll recognize it. And th imagine having all these guys on your basketball team. Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, John Stockton and Carl Malone, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Patrick Ewan, Chris Mullen, David Robinson, and Charles Barkley. There's the... That is a dream team, isn't it? <laughs> now, this church has an awesome dream team of its own, and, and my wife Julie and I just finally we got through. We're part of the dream team now. This church has a great team, dream team. But that was a dream team. <laughs> and and the, the men's basketball team smoked every team going through the Olympics on their way to the gold medal, which is what everybody expected would happen. You know, when it comes to this issue of pleading with God... God gives us a dream team of examples in his word as well to encourage us. And so I just want to show you a little bit about who that dream team is and what they did in a practical way, the examples of their lives pleading with God. And then we'll, sort of, we'll bring it back around and we'll look at some, um, some really practical takeaways for you for pleading with God. Okay, is that going to work for you? All right. So here's God's dream team of pleaders. We'll start with David. He is the king the most, the most powerful man in the world, what, 3,000 years ago, right? And yet he has stumbled seriously in sin. He's had an affair with Bathsheba. They've had a child. And God's not pleased about it. And God sends the prophet Nathan to David to rebuke him. And he does it in sort of a sneaky way. He tells him this story and asks David what his response. And David says, oh, that is really wrong. And Nathan says, uh, uh, um, and that's you. We're reading out of 2 Samuel 12. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David. 
It's Bathsheba, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. He pleaded with the Lord. He gave up all pride, and he was prostrate and humbled and desperate, desperate for God to do something to change his mind in this situation. David, the king, was pleading with the heavenly king. Here's another one for you. Daniel, chapter 2 of the book of Daniel. We see this awesome thing happen where King Nebuchadnezzar has these two dreams, but the, the fat cows and the skinny cows and the, big, the, the strong seeds, uh, heads of grain and the thin ones, and he doesn't know what it means, but he knows that it's profound, these dreams that he's had, and he calls forth all the astrologers and the wise men and the magicians to explain the dream to him. Nebuchadnezzar is not stupid, though, because he knows if he tells him the dream and says, interpret me for me, what does this dream mean? They'll all tell him something. So he says to them instead, tell me my dream and interpret it for me. And they all say, we can't do that. There's no way we can do that. How are we supposed to know? He says, well, if you don't do it for me, I'm going to kill all of you. And one of them remembers about Daniel, who is in prison, and they bring him forward, and he talks to the king, and he says, let me go off and pray about it. No man can do this, but God can do it. Let me go see if God will tell me. And the text out of 2 uh, Daniel chapter 2 says, Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. It's serious for him too. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision and then Daniel praised the God of heaven. Later, Daniel goes through this again on a different subject. He's thinking about the, the, the Israelites returning from exile and we read in Daniel chapter 9 in the first year of Darius, king, son of Xerxes, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Daniel pleading with the Lord. We start thinking, wow, I got a couple of good guys here who got down and dirty with the Lord pleading. Well, maybe, so, well, maybe that's just an Old Testament thing because we were more mature and modern and so we shouldn't be doing that now that we're New Testament Christians, right? Well, and then we, what do we hit? We hit the example of pleading that we are most familiar with in Scripture, which is the, which is the great Apostle Paul, the great evangelist of the New Testament who God specifically called, pulled out and called to go bring the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles, meaning all the non-Jews. And we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, this thing that's going on, and in the midst of this text, Paul describes a bunch of, gives us a bunch of personal insights into what's going on in his life and other things going on. And then he says in chapter 12, therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, so Paul's Say, listen, I know, I, I, I could have a tendency because of all these awesome things that God has me involved in. I could be tempted to think that it's about me. He says, and therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. 
But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. You know, one of the cool things as a little aside about that, I love this passage. I've always loved this passage because of the mystery of what the thorn is. We don't know what the thorn is. Some theologians say, oh, he had an eye problem. It was very painful. He had trouble seeing. That's why when you see some of his letters, he says, that's why I signed in such a big hand because he couldn't see what he was doing. Others speculate this and that. But for us, the super cool thing is, because we don't know what the thorn was, it may be the exact thorn in my life or your life or your life or your life. It doesn't, we don't know what it is. But we're given this permission to plead with God about it. And so that's, what's always, that's the one that's always been on my radar about Paul pleading like this. But it seemed like for this concrete like, problem in his life, right? But I think the rest of these texts open it up for us a little more broadly. It gets open for us a little more broadly by the real king, Jesus. The text doesn't use the word plead, but that's what he's doing. The day before he's crucified, during Holy Week, the day before he's crucified, you know, we read about Jesus going with some of the disciples up to the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's going to be praying for three hours. Because Jesus is fully God, he knows exactly what's going to happen. But because the scripture tells us he's fully man too, he knows what he's going to experience, the physical and emotional and spiritual pain that he's going to go through. And who would want to go through what he went through, right? And so he prays. He says, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. It doesn't use the word pleading, but Jesus was pleading, wasn't he? Pleading such that he... physiologically experienced this thing that none of us hope we ever go through where the anguish is so profound that it's making us sweat blood right out of our pores. That's what Jesus said. And so we'll we'll, we'll round this group of uh, of biblical heroes teaching us about pleading by going to Moses or uh, a little bit more of our focus. We'll just take a few more minutes to focus on Moses about this. Because Moses was unique, was he? Moses had a relationship with God unlike any person ever had or I think ever will because Scripture tells us that Moses spoke to God face to face as a friend. And we see some, you've got the references there in your guide, but there's some events that happen in the life of Moses that, um, that set something for us that I think is important to understand. The first happens, I think it's in, in Exodus 17. They've only been in the wilderness for a couple of months. You know, they, so, and these, three, these events are bookmarked in about a 40-year period. Right? They've had the, they, they, God has miraculously freed them from the Egyptians, parted the Red Sea. They've gone into the wilderness, and they don't know it yet, but they're going to end up spending 40 years there, and almost all of them are going to die because of their disobedience, and there's their children that are going to go into the Promised Land. But just a couple months into their time in the wilderness there, the people are thirsty. They run out of... It's this enormous group of people traveling, right? And they've got these flocks and herds with them, and they run out of water. And they're grumbling against Moses. And they need water, a a, a logical, physical need they have, but too bad they weren't talking to God about their need. And it says, Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, 
take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and it happens and the water comes pouring out. Nearly 40 years later, they find themselves in exactly the same situation again. Again, the people are thirsty. Again, they're grumbling against Moses rather than praying to the Lord about it, asking the Lord to fill their need. And this time God's response to Moses is, who is a great man of prayer, who's always going to the Lord in prayer. He's, this time God's response is, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes. Don't strike it with a staff. Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink it. So Moses took the staff in the Lord's presence, just as he commanded. He and Aaron gathered, Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. God had told him to speak to the rock, but instead he strikes it with his staff. Water gushes out and everybody drinks. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Because of Moses' disobedience, this tight relationship he had with God, nonetheless, because of his disobedience, God says, you're not going in. You've stolen the glory for yourself. You were supposed to simply speak to it. And my power would be shown to the people, but instead you didn't do it, so you're not going in. Likely, just a few months later, we're in the book of Deuteronomy and Moses is summarizing everything that this group has gone through for 40 years and is preparing them for the next stage and is having to tell the next generation what's going on, everything the Lord has commanded them to do, etc., etc. And he says to them, and he reminds them of the fact that he is not going to be going in. He's commissioning Joshua to be taking the people into the promised land. And Moses says, at that time I pleaded He's explaining what happened, and he explains what happened with the rock, and he says, at that time, I pleaded with the Lord, sovereign Lord, you have begun to show to your servant your greatness and your strong hand, for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do? Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that fine hill country in Lebanon. But because of you, the Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me, that is enough, the Lord said. Do not speak to me anymore about this matter. And God then tells Moses he's going to take him up on the hill and allow him to see the land from across the river, but he's not going to go in. And you know, so I've always been focused on this issue of Paul pleading with the Lord about this thorn in his flesh. It was only a month or two ago in my quiet time, I thought, look at that. I didn't know that Moses had pled with God about this thing about going to the promised land. It struck me. And I started wondering, wow, there are other people that did the same thing, and that's sort of this adventure. Isn't all these, you know, these adventures in Scripture great when you start plowing around and you make these discoveries? This is incredible. It's so, so cool. And now we discover wow, all these heroes of our faith pleaded with the Lord about things. And ding, I think I need to take note of that. If they're all doing it, it must be okay for us. It, you know, so we define this issue of pleading or begging a little bit a few minutes ago. The Hebrew meaning of this word that appears in Deuteronomy for Moses bears a sense of um, 
rubbing or agitating. Uh, it, it makes me think of the kid who's repeatedly asking to do something. Can I do something? Can I, you know, they're in the line at the grocery store. Hey, can I get some gum? 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 And I think to myself, that's Moses right there saying, God, can I go in? Can I go in? Can I go in? And it's incredible for me to think of Moses doing that because Scripture tells us, Deuteronomy 34.10, Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So look at this. So if it was Moses with this unique relationship with God, he's saying, can I have some gum? 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 If he can do that, why shouldn't we be doing the same thing then? If Moses is doing that, and we stop and we look at this passage and we think, what's Moses' this is really cool. What's Moses' motivation for doing this? Think about it this way. For 40 years, has he had a good time with them in the wilderness? No. What a drag that's been. These people who can't stay focused on the Lord, continuing problems, continuing grumblings, and he's the one responsible for leading them around while everybody dies. And then the offspring, the next generation is going to get to go in. But he says, Sovereign Lord, you have begun to show to your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do? In other words, he's saying, God, I see what you've done this last 40 years. I want to see what's next. I want to see what you're going to do in the promised land. And he's begging to go in to see that. We plead with God because we see in his word what he's done. And sometimes we see things that he's done in the lives around us. Moses has seen it all face to face, these things that God had done. So he said, I'm desperate, God. Please, 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 please. And he pleaded with him to bring this about. And so we see all these incredible examples of pleading for us in scripture from these great men. And so we say, well, uh, so what do we do with this then? Give me some takeaways so that I can understand how to, 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 to implement this as a part of my prayer life. So I just want to offer you seven maybe takeaways or summary points to consider in your own life or to consider about how to make um, pleading a part of your prayer life. The first is, you won't plead to God without anguish or emotion behind it. You won't plead without anguish or emotion behind it. There's a big difference between concern and anguish, isn't there? Anguish is like concern on steroids. There is this depth of, uh, 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 of um, anguish is this depth of emotion and passion that we feel in a situation that can overwhelm us. We can't get this thing off our mind. We can't let go of it. It distracts us continually. It's, or it's this thing that's like, you know, every time we hear this thing, it grabs our heart. And we can hear 50 different things on the news, but this topic, when we hear it, grabs us. Yes, yes. I think my wife, Julie, has that. She, when, she sees, when she sees a video of kids in Haiti, she immediately tears up. It's like, uh, we, we support, as a family, three kids through Compassion International. They're all in Bolivia. And she loves, she, the, Compassion sends out these videos of these kids in these humble circumstances 
and one's with these big, and maybe some tears, a big smile on her face, and she watches it. And tears just come down her face. It grabs her like nothing else. She could read 50 other things in the newspaper that are terrible. Just, it doesn't, it doesn't connect with her at that depth. But so she has this passion, this emotion, this anguish that she feels about this. You will not plead with God about something that you don't have a deep emotion and compassion and passion for. You will pray about things, but it won't be a pleading prayer that you offer. Uh, a couple of years ago, I got this, I developed this thing I love. I sort of broke up the days of the week into different items I was going to pray about different days. And one of those things, and so Monday, I pray for missionaries and ministers. Tuesday, I pray for trouble spots. Wednesday, I pray for uh, um, um, worries. Thursday, because I don't know what to do with the TH, I pray for the world. And then Friday, I pray for family and friends. And, and so, and, and I came up, my secular career was in the environment. I, uh, um, and I'm still doing that today. And um, so, uh, in part of my craziness, I th- pray for things that I, I'm sure that you don't pray about. Uh, having to do with the environment and this and that. And um, I'm almost embarrassed to mention them. And um, so I will, just to humor you. <laughs> the, um, th- there is this organization that I follow online called Sea Shepherd. And they are like environmental radicals. And they prevent whale poaching in, the Antar- in Antarctica. Go online and read about this. It's fascinating. And, and, you know, and I care about the world, uh, animals of the world. And I pray sometimes for the protection of, of wild animals of the world, for endangered species and this and that, so, because that's what I, the way God wired me, right? And I pray about that, but I don't plead about it. It's a concern I have. I don't plead about it. It's just something I touch on, you know? So I'm just trying, trying to draw your this distinction a little bit, right? So, so we won't plead about something without emotion and anguish behind it. Secondly, Sometimes we need to make a conscious decision to plead with God about something. Sometimes we need to consciously decide, I should be caring about that more. The most obvious area for us to do this is in the realm of the spiritually lost. Probably each one of us has uh, um, those in our nuclear or our extended family who are not Christian believers. There is something that we should be deciding that we're going to be passionate about, don't you think? Yeah. It's the most, the most significant thing in their life. And if we give lip service to it, what is that saying? There's a, uh, a pastor in North Carolina near where my, where my son goes to church named Bobby Conway. Great guy, one-minute apologist. Google that, super cool stuff, apologetic stuff to listen to. And he said something in a sermon I listened to recently. He said, You won't share God's rescuing news if deep down you don't believe people are in need of rescue. You won't share God's rescuing news if you don't believe deep down that people are in need of rescue. So you might have to decide. That's why I say sometimes we have to decide we're going to be passionate about something. Yeah, you're right, God. I I am supposed to be passionate about this. I'm supposed to be anguished about the loss that I know really well that I love, and I'm going to be doing it. I'm going to be praying for them. Third, the more closely you align your thinking with the world, 
the less passion you will feel for things of God. The more closely you align your mind with the world, the less passion you will feel with things for God. And if that's the case, you're likely going to be less inclined to be pleading because you're going to be thinking of things of the world, right? Fourth, pleading prayer requires a sacrifice of time. You know, I pray about all sorts of things. But the things that I have pled about have meant that I've had to set aside time, set my alarm earlier, do this, do that, because... I'm unsatisfied with the quickie thing going on in my list of 50 things to pray about. That's not pleading prayer. That's running through lists. And I believe God honors all those prayers, but that's not pleading prayer. And that's not the example that we saw from these heroes of the faith. Fifth, pleading prayer often seems to be linked with fasting. I don't know if you caught that while we were reading these different passages. Most of them had fasting associated with it. When we will willingly give up food, it, it puts us in a position where we are more inclined to be pleading with God. Uh, I've encountered that many times in my life. I am such an advocate for fasting because I think it opens me to the work of God. It, 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 it orients my thinking more towards him. And it's a, it tells God, God, I'm really serious about this. I don't fast about little things. I know fast about the whales. <laughs> I just don't do it. <laughs> right? But, 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 <laughs> but I, fast about, I fast about other things. Sixth, plead, just two more. Pleading prayer is a prayer of humility. David, the king, was lying prostrate in sackcloth, praying and pleading with God to, to, to spare the life of his son. As I said, we get down and dirty when we're pleading. It's, it's like the gloves come off. Uh, um, we're not focused about what other people think. We're just, we're, because we are bringing to him, to God, our anguish and our desperation, right? So it is humility. And seventh, pleading prayer is not polished or professional. We don't search around for just the right words that we think are going to unlock the, the key to the kingdom, right? We're just throwing it out there for God because we're pleading over and over and over again. And we know, uh, listen, God doesn't want the perfect words, right? Because the amazing thing is, because he considers, Scripture says he considers us our, our friend. We are his friend. We don't have to, like, assemble the thing. We don't have to have the bulletin where the words have been carefully, these beautiful words have been crafted for us, right? So, so, so what do we do with this then? Uh, for me, it, it, it does two things. You know, here's what almost always happens to me when I'm preparing a, a, a message. And I love and hate this part. I always come across some piece in it where I feel guilty because I'm falling short of what I'm going to be speaking about. And that happened is I thought, I have some people in my family that I need to be praying for their salvation. And I need to get down and start pleading for God because I prayed about that for so long. And I forget about praying about it. And I do this and I was like, I got to get serious about it. And so, and so, so part of it is, so I want, to, I want you to feel encouraged in that God says, go ahead and plead with me. But I also want to feel challenged, you know. If it's been a long time since you've played with God about something, it may be time to look in the mirror and ask him why you haven't gotten so serious about praying for something. It just, it's, all, it's all light prayer, right? Because we should all be pleading. We should all be pleading with God sometimes because why? We should feel anguish and passionate and emotion about some things for the Lord. 
I'm not telling you what those things are, but if it's been a long time since you felt that way, you've got to step closer and say, God, uh, I, I, I guess I need to examine my heart because I don't feel emotion or passion about anything for the kingdom. So, so that's the challenge for us. If, you're not, if you haven't gone there, feel encouraged to go and feel challenged to go in pleading to the Lord, okay? So what I want to do is I want to just uh, give you a, a, um, just a, a close this, this time of message um, for, with a prayer for you and turn back it over to PD. And I just want to encourage you to be asking the Lord, Lord, is there something that you've put in my heart, this passion that I've been sort of been holding back? I've almost been, uh, I haven't known quite how to go bring this to you in prayer, but I want to try this new direction with you. I just want to get down with you and work on this. Okay, so let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that we see in your word that you would just expect us to act like people, like humans. And you give us these examples so we don't have to feel like, oh, I don't get to act that way in front of God. I don't get to be honest with God because, Lord, we know we get to be honest with you. We should do it in a humble sort of way, Lord, or we're going to be doing a bunch of repenting. But, but Lord, you, you, you say it's fine for us to come to you and plead. And so, Lord, we want to be, as part of our prayer, we want to be pleaders. We want you to view us as pleaders meaning that we feel such commitment and anguish and emotion about something that we bring it to you in a serious, serious way. And so, Lord, I know this week you've laid a couple things on my heart. And, Lord, I pray that your spirit would touch each person here and lay, a, lay something on their heart, Lord, and help them into this pleading prayer life if they have never been there before. Lord, help it to feel comfortable for them. Help it to feel natural. Help it to feel like, yeah, I get to do this with God because he knows me by name and he welcomes me and he calls me friend. So, Jesus, I just pray that, and why is it, Lord? Because we want to be a church and we want to be a people who embrace powerful prayer, who plead for the kingdom, who plead for things in our own lives, the lives of people around us that we love, and even situations in the world that we don't touch at all, but we see them and we want desperately for you to be involved. Lord, thank you for loving us so much that you are willing for us to plead, that you are so comfortable with us that you're willing to come before you that way, Lord. We just worship you tonight, Lord. We thank you for that, Lord. Direct our thoughts in our prayer life, Lord. We pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.